Thank you, Aggie. Thank you, Tom. You know, I've never stolen land from someone. I've never owned a slave. And I've never suppressed wages based on gender. But let me tell you, uh, in the 1800s, a number of treaties were made with the Ho-Chunk Nation here in the Madison area. And then uh, the treaties were designed to help settlers and the indigenous folk figure out how to live together, hunt, and whatever. Regularly, those treaties in Wisconsin were broken. I think for the Native community, there was a sense of own the land that Creator made? Like, how is that even possible? How can one own something Creator has given to all? So a number of treaties made and broken. Finally, in 1840, Henry Dodge, first Wisconsin governor, ordered troops to round up Ho-Chunk people and forcibly remove them to Nebraska and other places. And then in the early 90s, Janine and I bought a patch of land that once was occupied by the Ho-Chunk Nation and taken from them. They were forcibly removed. Now, I come from working class stock, you know, grandparents who worked on the locks and dams as a welder or um, the railroads. And yet, um, my great-grandparents were attracted to this country because of its prosperity. A prosperity built for hundreds of years because we had a massive labor force that we had captured and exploited and determined were not fully human and therefore could be used how we liked. And that wealth was built on the backs of slaves in ways actually that other countries in the 16 and 1700s who, for whom slavery was legal, there are ways in which American slavery looked different, much more exploitative, much more brutal. And so the wealth that grew out of slave labor attracted my grandparents. My dad served in the Navy and benefited from the GI Bill, allowed him to take out a loan and buy a house and go to college. Black servicemen and women were not as able to take advantage of the GI Bill because the institutions that administered it, colleges, admissions offices, bankers, real estate authorities, withheld those things. And so generations of wealth were built up in my family. I was able to go to college because my parents could help me. I didn't have to stay home and work to support my family. That's not true of many black families. And then my opportunities for advancement in my job were plenteous. So my first real advancement was becoming a a director of global programs from being an administrative assistant. That happened right when our firstborn, Hannah, came around. 
And my advancement was not held back because I had a baby, needed to take time off. Over the seven years that we had kids, I kept being able to build my career. And then there are ways that I was encouraged to lean in and speak up and ask for raises. That's not true of all folk. And, and honestly, there are probably ways that when I see leadership uh, expressed in male form versus female form, I feel differently about it. Just as when I see behavior from a white person and a person of color, I tend to respond differently, to feel differently, if I really examine myself. We live in an individualist society. So we tend to dismiss corporate sin, collective sin. But we are more than just threads. We're fabric. We tend to see ourselves as a thread rather than as a fabric. I've got a couple shirts at home that I can't wear because I've worn out the elbows. I must have pointy elbows or I, because I like to roll my sleeves up, it's more pressure. I can't wear those shirts. Many of the threads are still very good and intact. And in fact, the threads that are broken, those around it get more stress and they've begun to break too. I can't wear an entire shirt with many great threads because several of them have torn through. We own a share in collective sin. We benefit from and we suffer as a result of the sins of those that we are connected to, the sins of those in whose fabric we are woven together. Now, I could probably identify and talk about corporate sin from a national perspective or from a perspective of uh, my people, people that come from Europe. I could talk about uh, the sins and, honestly, the, the glories of, you know, they're both, right? So we've got things we celebrate and things we lament about these fabrics, about my gender as a guy, as uh, an American, or even as a Bessenecker. Like there are ways in which I can talk about but need to own a share in the sins of those fabrics. I want both uh, personal piety, individual piety, and social justice, social piety. I want it both. I will be talking in a, in a month about personal righteousness, individual sin. There's a place for that. But too often we gloss over those ways in which we together as a people have sinned, that there is a stain on the fabric. We may separate ourselves because we only see ourselves as a thread. Threads were meant to be part of fabrics. And so, as we begin our Lenten series on the Call of the Prophets, I want to look at corporate sin, and I'm going to focus on the sin of the church, that is, the followers of Jesus. So there are many ways that you might be able to 
identify with, acknowledge, even confess and lament sins within your uh, clan, your, your people, your last name or your mother's household, father's household. But I want to focus on communal sin as it relates to the church. Lent as a, as a period of 40 days or technically 46 days or six weeks before Easter probably grew out of the uh, council at Nicaea in the 300s. It's been around for a while. And it is often this invitation to self-reflection, simplicity, and sincerity, or self-reflection being repentance, and simplicity being sacrifice, denying oneself, and sincerity being honest, telling the truth about ourselves. This is a period of that kind of reflection, repentance, uh, sacrifice, and honesty. I often use fasting to get in touch with my frailty, my ashenness. You know, in Lent, on Wednesday, we often put ashes on our forehead to remind us that we're but dust. You know, from ashes, we came to ashes, we'll return. And so I find that fasting puts me in touch with that sense of my frailty. But what's interesting is I often encounter uh, God's grace and mercy in that time, rather than self-hatred. Like I find myself bumping into God's beautiful uh, love and grace, even as I'm getting in touch with my humanness. I remember in 2009, I decided I'm going to do a fast where I stand alongside brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who are poor, who are excluded. There are ways in which wealth is concentrated. And so I just want to stand with my brothers and sisters uh, as part of the same fabric who, um, who suffer hunger. So each of the six weeks, I picked six different regions, and I was going to eat just two meals a day what those who are poor in those countries eat. So, you know, in uh, one week, I looked at Guatemala and had, you know, rice and beans and tortillas. And at uh, one point, I looked at San Francisco and just ate uh, leftovers if they were available, uh, like those who live on the streets there. Um, but when I decided to, to spend a week eating what the poor in India eat, I was actually going to be in India. I had arranged my fasting, uh, regional fasting time, uh, so that I could, while I'm in India, I'm going to eat just two meals a day and what the poor I'm, I'm elder for a organization called servants to Asia's urban poor. So they work in slum communities and we're in Calcutta. And one of the evenings, uh, as part of our experience there in uh, standing alongside some of the workers, we were sent to have dinner in one of the homes in a slum community. And of course, those families who were part of the ministry, who were Indian and living in slums, they were compensated. But uh, me and a colleague went and had dinner in uh, a slum. I was super hungry this entire fast, you know, just two meals a day and just very simple fare, although I must say flavor is not absent in simple meals, and the poor 
love flavor just as well as anyone. So it can be very flavorful. But I was hungry. And when I went into this uh, cinder block two-room space, I was fed by those living in the slum community like I have never eaten before. They had probably 15 different dishes that came out at different times from the room that was devoted to cooking to the room that was everything else. It was laid out on bed because there was, that was the biggest thing in the room. And it was just this picture of being fed by those who are poor, with whom I wanted to stand in solidarity, but who absolutely undid me with their lavishness and their generosity. It's the mercy and grace of God, you know, as we try to step into a place of humility. There's God, you know, lifting us up. There we are, eating uh, with those who have been excluded, a lavish feast. It was a, a credible parable and period. Because um, there's feasting and there's joy, even as we enter into this space of reflection and confession and lament, we will run into God's extravagance. Now we're going to focus on the call of the prophets during this period, and I think Nicole kicked us off with Amos and thinking about the river of justice, tying that to places where she's actually been on a physical river with um, people who have been frequently excluded. And uh, the prophets had harsh words. But I love in the prophets we find almost this, you know, practically bipolar call that is strict and has a lot of judgment and yet hope and restoration. You know, I've called you to tear down and to build up, is what God said to Jeremiah. They're, they're both things in the prophets. And there's also a sense of identifying with the sins of the people that the prophets had. I find in myself and in, the, in some prophetic people and communities, this tendency to feel a measure of self-righteousness. That is, I'm the whistleblower, and I'm pointing to those of you who have messed up. There may even be a sense that, you know, I'm connected to you, but it's them and not me. That's not the call of the prophets. The prophets stood in that place where they both identified and called out the sin of the people that they identified with. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6. This is Nehemiah as a leader identifying with the sins of the people. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Here's Nehemiah, um, 70 years after the sack of Jerusalem. You know, he's, he's likely not even 70. And so this is a generation, or maybe two generations before him. And of course, that generation was being experiencing judgment from hundreds of years of disobedience. And the northern kingdoms, 
they had been expelled by the Assyrians more than a hundred years before uh, Jerusalem fell. And Nehemiah is saying, I confess the sins, we Israelites, including me and my father's family. Hundreds of years of disobedience, of waywardness, brokenness, and here's Nehemiah owning it. That's the prophet's call. The prophet stands with people in the communal sin that the prophet is calling out. There is a, a kind of barometer for the prophets, it seems. At least the Old Testament prophets, there are communities that show up again and again as like, this is evidence that something's gone wrong here. This is evidence of idolatry. And uh, there are communities where it shows up first. Look at uh, Zechariah 7, verses 8 through 12. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. These communities show up again and again as the prophetic evidence that idolatry is taking place. The widow in today's society might be the uh, single mom. How does the single mom fare among my people? If I'm focusing on you know, national sin, I might look more broadly. But focusing on sin of the church, how does a single mom fare? The orphan, the, the, the kids of the single mom foreigner, that is the immigrant, those who have come to this country and are vulnerable to exclusion. How does the immigrant fare in the church? And the poor is a uh, bit of the all of the above, but maybe those people unable to earn a living wage. When these four communities suffer, idolatry is present, and it reflects a kind of obsession about other things. You know, we talk about idols and worshiping idols. Maybe think about, you know, singing to this other entity or bowing down. I don't think that's a good reflection of what worship or idolatry looks like. Uh, what do we meditate upon? What do we pursue? What do we prioritize? What takes up space in our thoughts? Like these are the things that we worship. And there are ways in which possessions and money or power or ego become idols. These places that we bow down to in those ways that we prioritize or think about or pursue those things. Um, and when the church 
operates without idolatry, these groups flourish. Pursuing God's costly. When we or our comrades in the church experience that kind of obsession with things, or it can be with political parties, you know, those on the margins suffer, and we suffer. And we have to own those things that our fellow brothers and sisters operate in that lean us into idolatry. And I'm often affected by that. You know, as part of the fabric, we can't help but be influenced by these things, especially those nearest us, but even those further out affect us, how we think. And when Nehemiah did this in chapter 1, Nehemiah got this report that the walls of Jerusalem had broken down, and he recognized this is as a result of hundreds of years of sin in which I stand and own along with my family. Uh, A revival broke out, out of Nehemiah's confession of corporate sin. Um, And there was shalom, there was restoration because of this acknowledgement and willingness to own sins of people who had come hundreds of years before Nehemiah. Um, And part of the revival included a time later on in Nehemiah of corporate confession. So the people gather in uh, Nehemiah 8 after seven chapters of real struggle to rebuild, and there's opposition, and they resist the opposition. And then the walls are complete, and it's time to celebrate, and the law is read. And the people are just cut to the quick. They start weeping. They recognize how far they've come away from the standard. Look at Nehemiah 8, 9. And the word of the Lord, oh, uh, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now, this is a group of people who had been living uh, for some time in Jerusalem, or what was left of it. Like I say, it had been at least 70 years since the destruction of Jerusalem, and hundreds of years of uh, sin. In fact, in the recounting of the sin, they go back to Exodus, and they begin this litany of, um, here's what went wrong, Lord. And they're, they're owning and confessing stuff that had happened back in the Exodus hundreds and hundreds of years before them. But this was a party Nehemiah had called, and so wipe your eyes and let's party, and they party for seven days. And they come back to this place of recognizing sins committed in the Exodus and beyond, times that their ancestors were blessed by God, mercy was given, and then they strayed. Then they sinned again. And judgment came, and then they repented. You know, I love this this phrase in Nehemiah ten, 
that gives us a sense of the purpose of the call of the prophets. You know, he's recounting the sin, they're doing this communally, and uh, they ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. The call of the prophets is to turn us back to God, not to club us over the head. It may feel like that, but the intent is to turn us back. That picture of the prophetic invitation, even as it hurts, or even as we in an individualistic culture maybe have a hard time listening to a prophetic invitation to consider corporate sin, sin of the church, there is this desire for restoration and for shalom. So I want us to take a moment and consider some of the historic sins of the fabric that we're part of and to think about what does it mean for us to recognize even ways that strains of those historic sins are resident in us as a community and as individuals, as myself, my father's family, and my people, as Nehemiah confessed. This is a video that was created for Urbana 18, where students were invited to a time of confession and repentance in a corporate way, and to come out of Babylon, which is this metaphor for the political and economic and military might of a society that the church embeds itself in. Um, let's humbly listen to this litany. Throughout history, Babylon has tempted the church with her promise. Comfort, luxury, control. And too often we, we the church, we have been deceived. We have believed Babylon. And each time, the result has been despair and destruction. Come, let me show you what we have done. She who has ears, let her hear. He who has ears, let him hear. In 2018, the Me Too movement revealed story after story after story of sexual misconduct, harassment, assault, abuse. Then came the Church 2 hashtag. It seems as though even we have used power to prey upon the vulnerable. Just like the world caught in Babylon, we also used our power to protect our image rather than protecting the violated among us, silencing their hopes for justice. We did this. In East Asia, megachurch pastors stole millions from their church's offerings to fund family businesses and dreams of fame, fortune, and success. 
Martin Luther's writings made him an icon of the German church, but in his words were the seeds of anti-Semitism. His words paved the way for the Holocaust. And in South Africa, the justification for apartheid was written in a Christian seminary by Christian theologians. We cloaked evil in spiritual language. Our theology helped birth segregation, subjugation, and genocide. In Rwanda, the church and its clergy joined in the extermination of 800,000 Tutsis. We joined Babylon. We executed our brothers and our sisters. They came to our churches expecting Jesus' peace and protection and instead found a people captive to the dragon. We did this. How could we have been so blind? When European settlers and missionaries landed in America, they were backed by the doctrine of discovery, a church ruling that said Christians could subjugate the indigenous peoples who already lived on this land. Enemies of Christ, we called them, rather than beloved image bearers of God. Their bodies, their ground, over them we built our cities, our homes. We did this. Can we see it? In Canada, First Nations children were torn from their families and land and enrolled in Christian residential schools set up to kill the Indian and save the man. Filled with good missional intentions, we failed to honor every tongue, tribe, and nation. And instead, we sought to remake them in our own image. In Ghana, slaves were herded into castle dungeons, right below chapels for the merchants that were planning to sell them. We were so deceived that our songs of praise made us deaf, even to the cries of desperation below. This is what we have done. In 20th century America, crowds would walk right from Sunday morning church to participate in a public lynching. We failed to see the hypocrisy of singing amazing grace and then cheering an act of racial terror with the same tongue. This is the fruit of Babylon. This is what we have done. He who has ears, let him hear. She who has ears, let her hear. Can you see what we have done? I think the response to such a thing is the beating of the breast.
it's not the pointing of the finger. That's the right use of the hand right now. Lord, have mercy. It's easier to be the Pharisee than the tax collector in the parable. I'm usually that guy. Lord, thank you I'm not like, you know, these other believers. <laughs> but um, those other believers who, you know, aren't woke enough or whatever... Some of them beating their breast. They're the ones that walk away justified, according to Jesus. So there are ways in which uh, the prophet John, not John the Baptist, actually the beloved of Jesus, stood in that place. He wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote specific letters to churches. And so he would write to the church in the city of Madison and likely look at ways in which the city of Madison, the Babylon in Madison, had captivated us. So um, I can imagine like uh, the way in which we operate as an intellectual center and as a political center have you know, infected the church in unhelpful ways. N knowing that governance is good and that the church is called to be part of that, knowing that learning is good, church is called to be part of that. But there's also a way in which uh, an intellectual spirit or a political spirit that excludes, that looks down the nose, like that those things have become part of the church, and John might, if he were writing to the church in Madison, say something about that. But I wonder about FCBC, you know, letter to the church at Park and Regent. What would God say as a prophetic call to us to own ways in which our attitudes and our hearts need correction? I spent some time praying and debating and with a bit of fear and trembling, got some images and would love to put into words uh, a letter as if written um, in the style of the disciple John in Revelation about our church. It's safer to talk about the sins of the broader church, even the sins of the broader church in Madison. It's a little more uh, challenging. And, uh, yeah, a bit fearful to talk about. What about FCBC? So here's some things I wrote that I feel like need to be tested and held. To the angel of the church at Park and Regent... I see your acts of kindness, especially toward those on the margins, and I am proud 
of how you care for each other like a family. Yet I have this against you. You love your independence, but I have called you to interdependence. Your suspicion and critique of those I have charged to care for this body comes from a rejection of authority. Humble yourselves and unite in faith. I plan to use you in this part of my city in ways you cannot imagine to bring hope and healing and restoration. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So where do we go from here? How do we proceed on a Lenten journey I think as a community, as individuals and corporately in our house groups and in other places, we invite this self-reflection and repentance and this simplicity and sacrifice and this sincerity, this honesty, this breast-beating honesty. We have done this. Some may have Felt like they've confessed the sins of the global church or the church in Madison. But we've done so, or I've done so, from arm's length, from uh, the pointing of a finger, rather than a position of ownership in that sin. Some haven't done so because they don't feel like they're responsible. They see themselves as a thread rather than a fabric. It's time to see ourselves as a fabric recognize that the sin of others is something that we own that affects us and that sometimes we play into or that we're silent in regard to. It affects us. You know, in my immediate family of siblings and aunts and uncles in in that circle, there have been 13 marriages and 10 divorces. And there are... uh, family divisions where certain family members don't talk to other family members. Like there's something happening there. I need to examine ways that I play into that, confess that, and work toward unity and restoration. Something is happening within my family line that I am part of, sometimes participate in, and need to change, need to turn. We can't approach the sins of the church with a pointing finger or dismissal. These are real forces at work. Even in Nehemiah's time, after chapter 9, after chapters 8 and 9, where they have this massive confession, they drifted back. You know, even in the book of Nehemiah, there needed to be correction. It wasn't a one-and-done deal. Lent calls us to a vigilance, recognizing our frailty and brokenness as individuals and as communities. And the word I gave, I think, ought to be tested But there's a calling, FCBC, we have not fully stepped into. 
until we recognize the places of our pride, independence, and brokenness, we can never come together to do the kinds of things on this corner or in this part of the city that God's called us to. Let us pray. Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we and our family and our ancestors have sinned. We so need your mercy and recognize it, not just individually, but as a community, not just mercy for the community, but mercy for me too. Lord, teach us the way of humility. We so quickly write off and dismiss the words of the prophets. Help us to humbly consider them. There's likely some chaff in with some words. It needs to be sorted out. But Lord, there are kernels of desperate truth about us and our communities, the fabric that we're part of. Teach us to receive those things with humility, to turn and work toward restoration. Lord, out of Nehemiah's confession, you brought revival. I think there is a rightness to that order. Reflection, repentance, humility, lament first. Revival later. Come and bring your revival. In Jesus' name, amen.